They're bad. They're boys. And occasionally, they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Come back. Baby, come back. Bye, 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 bye. Bye, 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 bye. I must admit I was a clone to be messing around. But that doesn't mean that you have to leave town. Come back. Bye, 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 bye. Bye, 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 bye. Hey. How you doing? I'm all right, David Hellard. How are you? Good, good, good. Thanks, Jody Rainsford. Welcome to Bad Boy Running. Um, what what's up with you, sir? Well, I think you know what's up with me. I think I've had uh, so. If uh, listener, if you've um, been following over the last couple of weeks, you will have noted that I am suffering from a 17th century disease that actually <laughs> seems to be quite common. Uh, a lot more common. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of people who've had gout who haven't mentioned that they've had gout. Although I I think actually it, this doesn't tell us that this is common. It just tells you how many people listen to the podcast now. Is that it's like a one in a million, and yet we've had three others come forward saying I've had gout as well. No, no. What it should say is like these are do badders. So port. <laughs> um, uh, red meat and oysters uh, and lots of uh, salt and you know bad food there should be more there should as a as a proportion of an audience there should be more people but we, sh- we should have a gout aid station that is just foods that purport to give you gout well this is the thing okay so i think that this is exactly the thing that i'm noting have you noticed that okay, there, there has been a lot of talk about gout in the uh, in the facebook group and it's clear from there's a lot of people who've had gout and there's a lot of people who haven't had gout and all the people who haven't had gout are giving their, you know, trying to give their opinion as to what gives people gout or what doesn't give people gout. And the people who've had gout go, Nut, all of that's absolute rubbish. I don't eat any of that stuff and I've still got gout. It doesn't make any sense. So I, do, I, I discussed this with, uh, with uh, Ali last week. Like, it, it's a mystery disease. It's there's it only it, I think you've chosen to have gout but what I did like is that someone pointed out that it's the most painful thing that they've ever had um and I like that because it doesn't make it seem as though I'm quite as pathetic as I am it, it depends who the person is surely it depends who the per- okay. if they've been molecular their hasn't whole life this person hasn't had a baby that's probably <laughs> that's probably not going to be that's probably going to be the most painful thing that they ever do have they ever lost a leg? I don't know. Do you know what? It would be quite good to have a a kind of a, a World Cup of injuries. And you go through it and to say, like, what is worse, plantar fasciitis or like a, a, a sort of t- a, a, like a, a torn muscle or something like that? Just to go through the different running injuries to work out what the worst running injury is. And are you putting gout up there at the top currently? Well, the thing is, I don't even think it would class as a running injury. <laughs> I don't, I don't understand. No one really knows what what it's related to or how you get it. Like everyone says something different. It's literally the the. I don't understand. It's like, we go back to this thing about the Ben Greenfield thing of like, if you want to hug a tree, hug a tree. You don't have to put science around it. Why don't we just admit gout is just like magic? Like we don't, no one knows what causes it. It just so happened that the people that had gout 
back in the 17th century just drank a lot of you know meat and wine and stuff and that's mainly because the rest of the population was starving so they had nothing inside their body to cause gout well it's interesting that you say it's like magic because just before this gout occurred i do remember you mocking an episode of home game which was referring to a type of wrestling that also involved voodoo Oh, no, I wasn't mocking it. I was saying it was brilliant. Well, maybe this is your body's way of embracing it. I, I the think, magic of voodoo. It's, it's the only thing I haven't tried. I, I, I posited the theory um, last week that um, something like gout, you know, it's very common in, in older people. And because of how painful it is, and it's not just how painful it is. It's also the fact that you take tablets for it and then those tablets have side effects that are worse than the thing that you originally had. And then you take tablets for those side effects and then tablets for those side effects. And then you end up on 27 tablets and, and you're still in pain. And I said that basically that is the... Sorry, sorry, listen, if you listen to the last one, I'm repeating myself here. But that is the cause of Brexit. Like loads of really angry old people who are in pain and on 300 tablets because people haven't... Because people haven't dedicated enough research to work out how to get rid of gout. So you're saying that 52% of the population currently have gout? No, no, I'm saying it could be plus or minus <laughs> 3%. It, all it takes is just 3% of the population to have gout and to be angry for, for them to swing it. And I imagine a lot of Scottish people have gout. Oh, that would explain God. that. A lot of the South of America, as in not South America, but the South of America, they probably have gout, which would explain the Trumpism. Yeah. So are all the world's problems caused by gout? <laughs> exactly. This is it. It's my it's my universal theory of gout. We fix the gout, we fix the world. Okay. <laughs> nice. And how's the, the gout fixing going? Terrible. Absolutely terrible. I've gone on to um a, I was on I've they don't know how to fix it. That's the thing. It's one of those ones where you've got it's like the weirdest thing. You can't test for it uh, until four weeks after you've had it. Because they can't confirm that for this. So, um, is that because you can't put anything out? I just don't understand. What, what, I just don't get it. Like, I don't, you have to have a blood test for it. But yeah, after four to six weeks after it's finished, and so it's still painful. And so um, I've been on ibuprofen. They said take ibuprofen for a week, um, and I did that. That didn't do anything. So then they put me on this stronger stuff, which isn't anti gout medicine or anything like that. It's, it's just like a real, I don't know what it is. But Morphine? It's awful. It it like it just makes you sick and it fucks with your tummy and it's just horrible. It it makes it worse. It's almost worse than the gout. It it's not worse than the gout. The gout's still pretty painful, but it it's awful. The side effects are awful, you can't do anything. So then I've had to come off that and go on to another thing, which is which is uh, not as harsh, but they're saying that if I have side effects from this, I'll have to take another tablet to protect my stomach because my stomach is obviously getting a battering from all the like ibuprofen stuff. So, so it's just like I end up on these never ending tablets and my foot still hurts. <laughs> Maybe you know he's just stood on oh, something. Yeah. And by the way, and by the way, yeah, Brexit. Sorry, I've turned right wing as a result of this. <laughs> <laughs> Bring back hanging. Bring back hanging. Well, maybe something could help is a little bit of uh, of drugs that benefit running in the system. <laughs> Go on. Oh, now we've got more drug cheats. Well, actually, we don't. Well, we do have more drug cheats, but this one's less 
this one's more to do with actually what happened in the Olympics. I'm going to recommend a rival podcast, which isn't often we do that. But this one, have you heard of Bloodsport yet? No. So Bruno put me onto it. It's great because each episode is only 15 minutes long. And I was listening to it thinking, how do we take so long to say so little? <laughs> but in 10 episodes... The right, of... thing is, right, this is the way. Whenever, if, if we were very succinct and quick about talking about anything, people wouldn't be in the pub for hours and hours. Like, you go to a pub and you talk with mates and then you come out and you think, what do we talk about? And we're like, I, I don't really remember. And I, I consider this to be the same thing. <laughs> okay. I mean, I think that's a... A good thing, maybe, but um, <laughs> we can never remember what we've talked about. <laughs> like we go, oh, we'll, we'll follow it up with stuff. We're like, what did we say? Can't remember. Literally, the moment we stop recording. True, true. But the good thing is about Bloodsport. What I did, I wrote down what I listened to, like I could remember it for this podcast. <laughs> I mean, that is commitment, notes. right? You made notes during a podcast. I, I did. I've even been making notes in Chrissy Wellington's books, so we can do a good follow up into oh, yeah. with that um but yes yeah, it's, it's really good because it's it looks at what's happened with russia primarily but it goes back to 2008 2009 2010 all the way through and what i didn't realize and maybe i was in, i don't think i'm the only one to, to not realize this but they're saying that actually london 2012 was the dirtiest olympics of all time Right. Didn't old Rodchenko recently in an interview said that that's not true? He said he was like, there is no there, there it, it is no more or less dirty than any other Olympics that's ever been. I'm absolutely positive. That's what that's what I read. Is that just because we've actually. The the uh, the the cheats have, have been caught up, up. We've caught up at the cheats more so than other. Olympics, I don't know. That's the only bit that I read. Apart from the other bit where he said that Russia trying to kill him, but everyone knows that. Yeah, of course, of course. Now, the, the thing is, this was amazing. And this this actually did everything that I'd want a a documentary to do. It spoke to people that did cheat. It spoke to people who'd be kind of pressured into taking drugs, including a um, an English drug taker who was in a, a relationship with her coach who pressured her in, into it. Oh, really? Yeah, and I'm trying to get on the podcast now, but really, really interesting that. But also, I spoke to people like Hannah England, and the trouble is with with drug cheating, you don't necessarily notice the impact it has on individuals because those people aren't on the podiums, the people who are affected directly, and therefore they're not necessarily as big a household name as they would be. But Hannah England, for example, she came second in the, I think it was the 1500 meters. And, and that is what they said was the dirtiest race of them all. Um, oh, really? Oh, so she, wow. came, she came second in the world championships and then she didn't even qualify for the final in the Olympics, which is absolutely you know, horrifying for her where her parents had booked tickets for the final. She was going into it thinking I could potentially improve on this. Yeah. And to have these unknown athletes from countries you've never, you know, who you've never assumed would be good, suddenly beating you. And she was talking about how 
it was it was this ridiculous system where we've talked about the system before, but because the the drug testers are just there for each country, people would turn up to their camp and they'd have the Turkish athletes jumping over the fences because they were worried about being tested. It was that obvious to everyone else there that they were the drug cheats. But because it would be the French tester who turned up or the English tester, then there's nothing that anyone could do about it. Yeah. And, and you know, when we say Turkish, what we actually mean is um, you know, African runners who've converted for money to be Turkish, who've been kind of <laughs> invited over. Right. And so, you know, and the reason I'm saying that is because actually if you're someone who's changed nationality to be able to run for a country, you're probably more likely to sacrifice for elements of, 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 of your personality or, of, or I guess of your, your dream to reach gold. Um, but one of the – they were saying that the, the new drug they were using was this drug called uh, oral turinabol. Which is, which is a type of anabolic steroid. I think I'm on that, actually. I thought it's one of the things that I've been trying to get rid of this. Well, I mean, it, it, apparently it works very well, so I'd be surprised <laughs> if you were. <laughs> no, no, no. But um, one of the people have been taking it since the age of 11. Whoa! Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine that? And... So what kind of results do you get from that? I'm not saying that I'm plotting any kind of uh, experiment with my children, but, uh, you know. <laughs> I mean, the, the, that's the scary thing is we, we know that you can obviously train harder for longer, but whether it has long time of um, effects on your health, when people wonder about Flojo, for example, you know, her early death and quite a few people who have, have come a cropper earlier than you'd yeah. expect who are also suspected of being drug cheats. But this was a, a, a blue. That's right. They, they, they. It was a blue vitamin pill. Was is how it was introduced to this young person as like, oh yeah, take this blue vitamin pill. And this is when you you feel absolute um, sorrow for the Russian athletes and for these athletes yeah, where absolutely. they're in a system that doesn't give them a choice. And um, and and the. That this drug basically couldn't be tested before the London Olympics, but it leaves something called long-term metabolites, which can be tested after, which is why so many drug cheats have been have been caught. But um, you, you think of someone like Hannah England, and she lost to someone who lost 15 seconds in their PB in the 1500 meters in one year. What? Which is i mean that that is insane an insane amount if you think that's the equivalent of a second a hundred meters absolutely ridiculous and um yeah so you you just it, it's crazy when you think about what's been happening and 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 they were saying that what was interesting about the russian doping system is that the Russians who weren't good enough once they'd been doping or the Russians that started to um, fall out of line, they'd be offered up on the, uh, you know, offered up to the gods, the, the doping gods. And they'd say, look, we've caught these, these people 
their doping. And so they'd be thrown at, they'd be thrown to WADA as the dopers. Yeah. Though that the international community thought, well, Russia's catching dopers. Yeah. The system's working. Yeah. And after, um, after a lot of people have been caught, then people would pay fines of one of the runners who was going to be running for the London Marathon paid half a million so that things would just go away. Yeah. It's, it's such a good documentary. It's like podcast. 15-minute chunks, so everyone's minutes. got... That's worth listening to. Yeah, 100%. And there's a lot of the things you'll know already because it's, it's so common knowledge, but actually it, it goes into the minutiae and the detail, which is, is a really interesting yeah, part. There's, there's just so... I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? You kind of, it? It kind of feels like there's a bit of a fatigue around talking about mm. it. How much more can you say? And it, it's quite depressing in, mm. in that sense, isn't it? You're just like, I don't want to hear more about it because... Literally everything to do with sport now is just going to be about doping. So it's really interesting they found that really interesting angle. I mean, we've been trying to you've been trying to get on someone who's thought about doping or you know has done doping stuff like that as well to get get their perspective. So it feels like they've kind of done that. Um, and yeah, managed to, managed to speak about it, but that's awful, isn't it? Like for for Hannah England, I mean, just what you know, something you train so it's not it's not as if you could ever recapture that as well. That's yeah, yeah. that's it gone. Yeah, and, and the fact that it's just so blatant as well, where an unknown athlete loses 15 seconds. And it, it I, I can't, I can't, there's nothing as, as frustrating as, as injustice. Yeah. So to lose, to lose to someone better, you know, it can be hard for, for a lot of people. But the fact that even during the race, you'd know, who are you? What are you, where have you come from? There is no way. And it would, in trying to race a good race, even when that's happening, let alone in a semi-final, you you expect to cruise and to just be run out of completely. Um, do you, so do you think it's put, it's going to, I mean, this has got to have a knock-on effect, hasn't it? It's got to have a knock-on effect of people getting into sport. And people, you know, because they've done a huge amount in the, in, in actually, this comes onto the point I want to make um, about the Olympics on, on a separate note completely. Um, but um, it's got to have an impact on, you know, the, where, before like the, you know, running up to the 2012 games, there was a big push to try and, you know, find real talent, uh, Olympic talent in this country, in, in some mm. of the sports where there were weaknesses and, and things like that. And it was a real effort. If, you know, if we get to a stage where you're, you know, you're going to be told that you're going to have to take drugs or if you don't take drugs, you're already at a disadvantage. I mean, what does that do in terms of people wanting to go into the sport? People, you know, it's just it, it creates such a cloudiness around it, and it's really difficult. It's really difficult to to see how you even have those conversations with 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 kids that want to get into it. Um, Although the good thing, tell them the good the thing is, of it. kids quickly forget because you know, five year old in two years' time will have no idea about any of this history. Uh, or even a five-year-old now, but a ten-year-old in two years' time, or and so yeah, no, I, but I, like say that you want you want you want to pursue it at you know, mm. uh, sort of an athletics level. I, mean, I don't mean that young, but kind of like a you know like eleven, twelve, going up to those kind of ages and getting yeah. If you're it, yeah, if you're on the cusp and you're thinking, what's the point in it? Must happen where you're, what's the point in me actually going for this? Where yeah. some Russians just going to take drugs and beat me no matter what I do? Yeah, it's got to get to that point. Yeah. It's got to get to that sense of it. It's got to, it's, it, because now we, we, we've gone from the tipping point of thinking it's just a few like bad apples to everyone is doing it. 
It's yeah, you know, that's it, isn't it? You just think everyone is doing it, and so uh, that's got to the- have an impact. And the, the, what hopefully now, though, is happening, because even the documentary was saying that actually one of the frustrations was even when Russia was shown to be this massive cheat, firstly, they did nothing to, to strip them <laughs> of Sochi. But also, there weren't really, because everything's legal, and so you can't just turn around and, and do your gut reaction because you have to follow due process, and they have to be within the confines of whatever the punishments are within the within the sport and so now it's only now really that they are actually changing things and hopefully what it's going to mean is a restructuring of the way testing is done so that it is centralized it's not dependent on the funding of the local country as much and it's not dependent you know it, it, it's crazy that a country jug, uh, tests itself I mean that that's so obviously a clash there. Yeah. When the funding comes in the same place a lot of the time, and if you if you're a, a sports association, you want your country to do as well as possible. That's good for you. You get more funding, you get more power, you get more influence. Um, yeah. So I, hopefully it's going to break that up. But well, okay. So like this is the thing I would have talked about, which I, I read about a couple of weeks ago, and um, I, I just wanted to get your take on it as well because I'm I, I just don't know what to think about it. Um, and it was when the um, the idea came out that I think what's his name? Who's in charge of Team GB? Um, which which sport? What Sebco in terms of for, 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 for the Olympics? Um, Mark England, yeah, leading the British team. He said that the Team GB should focus on athletes' dreams and not just medals. That actually needed like a change of focus, both in terms of because of COVID and because of mm. what's you know getting some kind of perspective, um, and also in terms of <clears throat> a lot of these abuse scandals that have come out as well. Um, and you know, pushing people to to do that, and say that basically saying that the medal table is 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 kind of irrelevant now. Um, well, that's so a big statement that? to say. That that's is a big statement for the person heading up your Olympic team. Yeah, and I mean, it's amazing they said that in some ways. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard, isn't it? Isn't it? I, mean, I, know, I know there's that whole thing about football is that, you know, people say, oh, you know, it's just a game of, it's just a game of football, you know, like, you know, it's not as important as life or death. And I suppose there is a sense of saying, you know, that this is a, I don't, to me, I don't know whether this is like a PR statement, at, you know, talking about what, you know, I don't know whether this is a clever thing about thinking about funding for, for, for athletics and stuff like that. Uh, in the wake of the fact that we're going to be going into a really tough period next year where there's going to be a shitload of cuts and the first thing on the block is going to be British sport. So he's all obviously shifting it at this point to be thinking about, OK, this is about this is going to be about more than just medals because medals aren't that important. But, you know, being role models and all that. I, I don't know whether it's a PR thing, a really clever PR yeah. thing. Uh, but the, and, the, tru- the trouble is you're... It's a competitive sport where the only point of the sport is to win. It's it's not like a it, it's if that was ultra running, fair enough, completing, but everyone out there is out there purely to win, and or so. You, or, do, or do you think it's that thing like we hit our peak with uh, what's the what sixty seven medals or whatever in Rio, 
And they were just like, he's doing his thing going, uh, we've changed our focus. If we get less than 67, it's because we're just, we're, we're just, you know, we're being a lot more sort of rounded about our athletes and stuff. That's it. There's so many, <laughs> there's so much in this that I, I, I just don't, I, I, I struggle to see at face value. But has, has he given a framework of or different targets that you're aiming for? Or because what would be good, for example, is you could change it to like positive press or um, number of number of children engaged in it or number of people that watch it or because actually that would be relevant in that it's about getting people active. It's about inspiring people. And so that is a target that I think would be worthwhile putting in place that it'd be hard to quantify, but would potentially be quantifiable. But, but, that's the thing. but the Olympics, don't the Olympics always have this legacy thing, don't they? They're always supposed to have this legacy thing. And it's mainly around the people who, who host the games. But and everything about like, you know, the, the whole reason that, you know, we put money into swimming is then we want to get more people into swimming because there is a direct effect of seeing people succeed at sports and people wanting to do those sports. There is a direct thing. But the, if you don't follow that up with, you know, the whole wasn't there a whole idea around the whole swimming thing that, you know, they wanted to get a certain percentage of the country you know swimming at regular periods and there'll be free lessons for kids and things like that. And none of that ever happened. Like they pretty much found that the legacy of the London Olympics is the, the, like there is no legacy or, or, or something, something really miserable like that, as there is from every single um, every single Olympics that's ever hosted anywhere. Um, well, I think the, the trouble is that the if that, if that's the sole aim, then the Olympics isn't set up to achieve that. Because no. why are we doing pole vault? Like, how is that? How is that ever going to inspire? a community to get involved in a sport you know that's always going to be just three people that aren't quite good enough at long jump or whatever it may be you know if, if we're actually doing that properly then we'd we'd choose sports which it is possible for the vast majority of people to get involved in yeah exactly that's it because even tennis you know there's there's so much money in england te- in england tennis because of wimbledon but the reality is You've got to have a tennis court. People have got to have rackets and newish balls. And, and those are very expensive. And it's not as if you can just pick up a tennis ball and start hitting it. It's not like running mm. or football or mm. things like that. You've got to, it, it, it takes a while to even be able to have the skill to be able to have a yeah. rally. If they really wanted to change tennis, get rid of overarm serving. serving. It's too hard. Like how many people can overarm serve without oh, no, having tennis painful. lessons? And so therefore, that's your that's your bottleneck. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I, I think he could probably go into it, downgrading the number of medals expected for us to, to be won, because he can just be honest and saying, we had this and that. And this year, this is what we're going for. So I think he could do that without losing faith, her uh, face. Um, but yeah, unless you back it up, you know, what's the point it's in... Like- Setting like targets. He I mean, sounds like the Scottish football manager whenever he's going to a World Cup. We're just going, you know, well. Don't come home too soon. Yeah, don't. No, it's, that's kind of what it sounds like. It sounds so defeated. It sounds so terribly British. Could you imagine the the USA like coach saying, "Oh well, you know, the medal the medal uh, table doesn't matter." Just yeah. And what about all those people who um who have uh, you know 
religiously doped on behalf of uh, their country to get those to get those medals as well. I don't know. 100%. I it's, a, it's a weird one. It's a re- I, <laughs> uh, it, it feels like he's setting some up for some funding row somewhere. Well, now I've I've got some good news for you. Okay. I've created a beer for running. Okay. Isn't that just well, all beer? <laughs> Well, they've actually, this is, it's an article from Running Magazine, Canadian Magazine, and a brewery have actually looked at what you need to rehydrate after exercise. And they've changed the electrolyte balance of their drinks. Oh, go on. Yeah. Um, well, exactly that. So they've, they've changed the, because you do get electrolytes in the drink, but they've actually looked at the balance of kind of sodium, magnesium, calcium, potassium, chloride so that the idea is when you've done some exercise it really is a good drink to have post run so that you can um, rehydrate quicker oh yeah amazing right yeah that's good what's it called it, the name of it is let's have a look rally beer r-a-l-l-y i mean not necessarily the the greatest name for a sports beer. Well, I want to see. I want to see at the end of the marathon, at the end of um, the 1500 meters and all these races now having the rally beer there where everyone just comes in and just drinking away their beers. That'd be great. I feel like, I feel like we're coming to a conclusion. We don't come to enough conclusions on this podcast we can we, we, i mean like solutions to things like we've talked about i actually i don't know how we're going to work gout into this but we've talked about drugging in the olympics we've talked about lack of ambition over medals in the olympics and now we're talking about a beer it feels like those three things can come together to solve a problem somewhere i don't know what the problem is or how it can happen but it feels as though we we we, we there's a solution there somewhere that can solve all problems if that's you, listener, let us know, and we'll fill you up with beer, gout, and drugs. It just, for some reason, I don't know why it came to my mind, and I don't know whether I'm getting philosophical because uh, I'm dying of gout or whatever. Um, but, oh, God, yeah, have you seen it? Have you seen the trailer to the next Bill and Ted's? <laughs> no. Oh, my God, it's amazing. It's both terrible and amazing. Well, I think it's the good thing is it, it knows it can be terrible if it embraces it. Well, I think it does embrace it. It clearly embraces it as well. Um, but um, but yeah, I think I think we're kind of like we can be the Bill and Ted of the sports world. And with a small amount of time travel, beer and armed with knowledge about doping, I think somehow we can turn this around. We can turn what has been a terrible, terrible 2020 into something wonderful. I, I, I don't know what I meant to say to that. <laughs> but, but yes. 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 <laughs> so yes. yes. I'm on board. I'm on board. <laughs> you sound like <laughs> Boris then when you said that. That, that sort of non-committal, <laughs> yes, yes, I'm on board. <laughs> but if, uh, if you're wondering what to do, if you've had a bad day, year this year, you're not the only one. <laughs> you wait till next year. <laughs> <laughs> you wait till next year. <laughs> So to catch up with his 2020, <laughs> we're speaking to Jim. 
from Rare Race. Take it away, Nick. We often get our favourite guests back on. This one, we're getting back on, back on, because Jim and I recorded this interview <laughs> right at the start of Corona, and we're both really depressed about the world and life and our <laughs> prospects. And while our prospects aren't necessarily, well, Jim's are very good, obviously, but you know, not not incredible. They've definitely improved. So we wanted to get Jim back on where we can have a more sunshine, blowing, glorious episode as such so um to welcome back on the podcast to talk about how he's changed from our last episode to what rat race is doing now it's lovely jimmy yay, yay. good to be back <laughs> again oh you again. Know what? I, I, I want to hear this ill-fated episode i wonder if we can release this as a bonus the miserable old gits episode is it like is it like waldorf and statler oh yeah oh, it will be it'll be along yeah. those lines yeah yeah it, Best How long was it actually? Um, about oh, three God. weeks in. Yeah, it was. It was in deepest. I mean, it, life pre-COVID. That was a long time ago. But it, it must have been April or early. Was it early May? God, I don't know. Every, every day and week is you know it's the same, wasn't it? In, in, the, in the depths of lockdown. Well, things back then because we we started that episode saying that we were almost going to try and pretend <laughs> not talk too much about. Uh, covid yeah because everyone will be bored of it but actually it'd be quite interesting now to to get a sense of like what has changed for you since that doom and gloom at the beginning of covid um well like life is definitely a bit a bit less shit that's for sure um and i think i, I don't know i mean you know as, as many other event organizers we, we probably kind of right at the beginning it, it was just oh my god you know what what are we going to do? You know, I mean, it, it was, you know, it was existential, you know, it felt it. And, and, and for us, actually, the whole COVID thing started before it started in, in this country, because we were, um, we were meant to be going to Mongolia with, um, with Sport Relief, doing a project for Sport Relief, taking some celebrities out there. And my God, that feels like a long time ago. It's February. Um, and of course, we couldn't go to Mongolia because Mongolia is, you know, has a land border with China. And this was all playing out um, clearly in, in, in Southeast Asia long before it was playing out here. So we had to switch our guns very, very quickly from doing this very high profile sport relief job in Mongolia. And in seven days time, we turned it around and, and we took these guys to Namibia. Um, and, you know, that it, it worked. I mean, it was it, it was a harebrained scheme. It, you know, we, we pulled it off and, and, you know, sport relief made a program, you know, 1.5 million quid raised sport relief. It's brilliant, brilliant. And, and you know, we did this thing and obviously we were out in the desert in Namibia and it was all playing out. You know, we knew coronavirus was rumbling. It was getting more serious around the world. And we arrived back in the UK on, on Monday morning. And it was like, oh, right. OK, it, it's here. And, and we're now talking about events in the UK. And oh God, it, and it, it just went from there. So I don't know, you know, the, the, the whole summary is probably at the beginning. Yeah. Existential doom and gloom to right, what we're going to do you know, sort of through adversity. I mean, we've, you know, we've become a virtual event company, which I'm sure you've heard from a lot of other um, organisers. Mm. That's been brilliant, actually. It's been a real revelation. Um, you know, it's, it's kept people really occupied, um, our customers, and, and kept us occupied as well, packing a lot of, a lot of medals. Um, and, you know, we, we, we very much took the approach, right, you know, we've got to be out there. We've got to be proactive, you know, and, and obviously we dealt with a significant number of deferrals. I mean, at this point now, we've deferred, well, every single one of our UK events and, and most of our international projects from this year, it's over 30 projects. 
Um, but we opened events for sale for 2021 and 2022. And that's been brilliant, you know, and, and people, what I call the sort of quote unquote future future, you know, sort of that far off life beyond COVID that people are, are thinking about and planning for. Well, they are planning for it and, and they're now starting to enter events for the future future. And whilst, you know, the outlook is still very uncertain for the next six to 12 months, um, you know, in terms of the disease and, and certainly in terms of events, you know, we still don't really have a start date. I think the future is looking really bright. So, yeah, you know, I can, I guess, dark times, sad times, um, uh, very surprising times, you know, clearly probably heard a lot from from listeners about, you know, sort of surprising times they spent with their family and silver linings of lockdown. Whilst the whole thing's been tragic in the extreme, you know, we have taken some you know, some 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 lighthearted moments, and and yeah, I think just a roller coaster ride. Um, what's what, what's going to be the impact then of next year? So if you've deferred, how like however many over to next year, what what that must have a massive impact on your on your potential revenue for next year. So does it is does it mean that essentially you have to almost write off next year as being profitable? I mean, I don't know what your finance are, but the, what 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 impact does that have? Well, different projects actually, because we. You know, at the beginning of, of the process, um, yeah, you know, a, a lot of those events were, were literally just about to take place. So, you know, we had an event in Panama, we had an event in Mongolia, we had an event on Aaron um, and our, our big um, obstacle run Dirty Weekend, that was in May. So sort of between mm. you know, March and May, these events were effectively just about to happen. So, yeah, a lot of them were, were kind of full. And when we go back to Aaron next year, that there's not many more sales we can make for that event. So it's effectively, you know, we're in the unenviable position of some of those projects are effectively having to pay for them twice. Yeah. You get right to the start line and then you've got to do them again. But then you've got the events that, that we're deferring now and, you know, sales stopped dead in, in March. So whilst clearly we had sold entries into those events, we hadn't by any stretch reached our capacity um, because no one was entering events in the UK, you know, throughout the whole of the lockdown period. So, you know, there's more capacity there. So it's, it's a mixed bag. Um, it's very much a mixed bag. And, and I think, you know, we've we've got to, you know, accept a, 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 a fair amount of stoicism with the whole thing, really. Um, but equally, you know, testament to um, a, a massive majority of our customers, they, they've come with us on that journey and we will see them again next year. And, you know, we're going to put on some great shows. So, yeah, I think it's it's a very mixed picture in terms of how it's affected us. But the overriding picture is, you know, we know we're here to stay. You know, we know we've got good prospects and we know now that people are entering events for next year, you know, because everybody is sick of this thing and wants to get out there. So, you know, I'm, I'm very optimistic about it. Um, is there, is, is there a, a, like a, almost like a like the silver lining to this is the fact that for those race companies who have done things right in the past, and have built communities and you know really looked after their customers they're the ones who who are going to survive this much better than those who have you know been seen as fleecing customers or or haven't taken quite the same steps to build a community or sending them straight headfirst into it's a battle covid in florida or anything else like that but yeah i mean like just just you know almost the 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 hard graft that, that some companies put into to building the communities and, and and having that kind of loyalty to it that that must really pay off at this particular moment i i think so yeah i mean everybody's situation is going to be you know 
potentially the same in some ways, but but different in others. You know, I mean, obviously for us, you know, we were staring down the barrel of events right there and then that, that were just about to take place. Some organisers may not have had an event until November or whatever. And, you know, some, some event organisers have postponed and then obviously they've had to postpone again. Everybody's, you know, the people that kind of postponed to autumn and then have had to postpone again into, into next year. So I think everybody's experience on a sort of commercial level will, will, will perhaps be slightly different. But on a very macro level, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think there's a massive reset button coming. Um, and, you know, we, we've used this time um, to try and innovate. I mean, we've launched new stuff, um, which is great. You know, perhaps we wouldn't have got that stuff open and we will launch more. Perhaps we haven't got that stuff open until later on, and we've, we've been given the time to do that. Um, and, and some, yeah, some companies that maybe haven't treated their participants or their communities as well might struggle, might struggle in, in that relaunch, in that reset. Um, I certainly don't think there'll be any shortage of demand next year. Um, but, I, you know, I, I absolutely don't think everybody's coming back. You know, there's there's, there's no question mm. that not everybody's coming back. Um, and, you know, and how long... With with your the races that you've got coming up, like if they said that suddenly tomorrow races are back on, how long? Like because you've got longer distances and also bigger money um, for people to spend. Are, are you factor having to factor that in, thinking we can't put a bucket list on even if we're allowed to for another eight weeks because we've got to give people the chance to train, or do you think people are training through? And have you got any races that you think, actually, as soon as people can race, they will race. So we, we've we got some events that as soon as we can turn that website on, we're going to try and sell out in a week and do them the week after. No, we, we're, we're all about taking our time here. Um, you know, we're all about giving people the lead time, um, you know, giving the customer the confidence in training, in travel, in all those things. And certainly with, with these bucket list projects, these big international projects that we're talking about, they're, they're huge commitments. They're huge commitments financially, obviously, um, and, and, and sort of psychologically, you know, we need to give people that. So I, I think I think our more kind of weekend based UK stuff, I mean, certainly um, the summer events, you know, the events that were just about to take place in, in mm. kind of June, July, we were getting a lot of inquiries coming in a couple of months ago. For example, the wall, you know, ultra marathons, you know, the wall ultra, um, 69 miles or, um, you know, Aaron, et cetera. And, and people were saying, look, guys, you know, we, we'd rather you just pull it because we're just not going to get the training under our belt. And I think that's, that's totally fair enough. Um, and so again, you know, if it's a 5k, if it was a 10k, yeah, no problem. You know, if you can put it on in a couple of weeks time and you're good to go, why not? Um, if you can make it COVID secure and people want to come, you know, with those new modifications, whatever they may be, I'm sure there will be operators that, that take that decision. I don't see anything wrong with that. I think what what we found, um, again, with our bucket list and a lot of our UK projects in terms of physically where they are in the country, you know, these are often in small communities, mountain communities. And you know, some of these communities aren't quite ready yet. You know, they mm. they don't necessarily they're not necessarily traveling at the same. I mean, we've seen it with the home nations, you know, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. They're all operating at different rates of reopening um, in terms of post lockdown. Well, that's the same on a micro level. You know, you go to a small village in North Wales or in northern Scotland. That's very different from being in central London or one of the big cities. And, and particularly if you've not had much COVID. Well, you know, there's a community aspect to this in terms of how quickly they want to open up. So even if we would have had the go ahead potentially in somewhere like or well, the Highlands as an example, 
I, you know, it would be a gamble for us to say, right, we're going because we don't quite know whether we've got the local community with us or not. And by September, that may be different. But, you know, we're, kind of, we're not in September yet. So, yeah, it, it, it's it's been a judgment call throughout the whole thing, really. And, you know, just as governments and airlines and everybody else are sort of feeling their way through this. So have we been that there's no real right answer. It's just like, does it feel right? Well, not quite yet. Well, we better defer it then. You know, that's the sort of the approach we've, you know, we've been taking, keeping our ear to the ground as much as possible on the, you know, on the kind of the, the regulatory stuff, which again, isn't quite there yet. So. And would you say, what, sorry, yeah, you go ahead, Jenny. I was saying, what, what, just thinking then in terms of like the different communities you're going to, especially around the world, now you turn, you know, pretty much international. What, what about like the impact of lack of capacity from the airlines? The fact that so many airlines mm. are pulling back and potentially, you know, increasing in, travel costs as well how, how i mean i don't is it too early to to really kind of work that out yet as to as the impact of that i, I think it is too early i mean as, as as soon as planes start flying you know we're going to find out more um you know we don't have any national events this year until 2021 now um you know which gives us a significant lead time you know for this to to play out a bit more um and again all you know countries are they're operating at different rates. You know, Mongolia, for example, you know, they're looking perhaps to open up in a couple of weeks time from now. You know, Namibia, where we, we were due to have an event in uh, November this year, you know, they've taken a much harder line. You know, we've seen hard lines being taken down in Australia, New Zealand. You know, everyone's, it, it's all, it's such a moving feast. Mm. So until we see a bit more of that, not quite sure. I, I, if I were a betting man, I would say airfares are going to be ridiculously cheap to begin with. You know, they just are, you know, because the customer confidence has to come back. And then over time, yeah, you know, supply might be an issue. You know, again, there's going to be some airlines that weren't there before, and there's going to be some social distancing to work out whether that's testing, whether that's capacity on aircraft, whatever it is. Um, and perhaps there will be some capacity issues where people are going to be spending more for flights. But I, you know, I, I'm not an aviation expert. I don't know when that's going to be. Um, Maybe you know, a rat race, a rat race plane. Oh my charter your own airline yeah what, what do they say how, how to become a millionaire start as a billionaire and open an airline <laughs> yeah. yeah that's perfect i open an airline in the middle of a middle of a yeah, recession that's that's right. a great <laughs> i knew i should come to you for a bit more business advice <laughs> yeah. dave's flying as well that's, yeah. that's the best thing. that's the bit you didn't know and you have a picture of him on the on the fin um, <laughs> i wonder like it, when you're planning like future races and things like, like that, does I mean, I mean, I don't know how much it would now, but do things like how countries have responded to, to things like COVID, do you mm. think that will become more into play? The fact that you, Australia, New Zealand, they, they did handle it hardline. They got things over. There's less of a risk of those countries because they, they, they have systems in place, whereas other places probably <laughs> UK included probably don't don't quite have the thing would you think that kind of stuff's going to going to be important in the future in terms of decide you know from a, just from a risk perspective as to whether you know you you, you do race because this isn't going to be the last pandemic that, that that affects the planet no I think I think everything will be a more nuanced risk assessment process and COVID will become part of that you know just, just like terrorism you know has has sort of been exacerbated over the last 10 years in terms of how, you know, people like us look at it, you know, in terms of risk profile, you know, global pandemics, whatever they may be next, and indeed COVID as it is at the moment, you know, will become a standard part of the risk planning process that perhaps in previous years hasn't been as as pronounced. Um, whether that will discourage us going to certain countries or not, again, case by case basis. I mean, I, you know, 
I'm, I'm, I'm no epidemiologist, but, you know, New Zealand, Australia, it was their summer, wasn't it? You know, so, so perhaps they're getting it next. Who knows? I mean, it, you know, there's so much speculation as to where the, you know, the second spikes come in and how bad it will be and all the rest of it. It's, it's almost like you can plan a bit too much with this thing and, and it, and it may still not shake out the way you think it's going to shake out. So, you know, for us, we keep our ear to the ground, you know, we plan, um, our event on its own merit. You know, we look at these kind of, um, these overarching factors of which COVID is, is absolutely now one of them. And we make judgment calls, you know, the judgment call we made in Namibia there, for example, for November, even though that's a long way away as well, you know, the inbound travel advice looks like we could probably run the event, but our customer probably can't get there or might not be able to get there. Therefore, there's a risk. Uh, and we need to communicate that, you know, whereas in Mongolia next March, for example, you know, none of that is looking like it's going to be likely. But, you know, we don't know until we know. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's just a, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a it's a moving picture and I'm sure, be, sure it will be for a while. But who are, you, are you are you glad about the shift that you've made as a result of this? Like rather than, you know, big events in the UK getting closed down, you know, with a, with with you know, obviously smaller margins to international races that are bigger, longer, bigger, you know, ultra events and things like that. Yeah, that have this a, did hit like, two years ago. Would yeah. it have been worse for you or better for you? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad. I mean, I'm glad about it on many levels, you know, but, but, but with this particularly, yes, absolutely. Because, you know, a lot of these projects that we're doing um, in international locations, you know, we're talking about 40 people. You know, this is not a mass gathering. You know, it's like a shearing's bus tour. Well, not, not a shearing's bus tour because I think they've, they've been a casualty, but, you know, we're talking about a kind of a, a tour group. Uh, level of 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 you know sort of imposition on a local community, which, mm. which is very very standard. S- saga level, saga level. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely feel that sometimes. Same speed um, as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I wish it was from eighteen to thirty, but it probably saga is probably uh, more accurate, certainly from my own proficiencies. But yeah, you know, it, it's it's pretty it's pretty easy to take forty people to a place, whereas if you're talking about a thousand or five thousand or whatever, it is a different kettle of fish. And you know, clearly, then you're into mass gatherings, um, which right now are persona non grata. And, and until it's worked out as to how to bring those back, then that is that is a different profile. And even when we've got, you know, the UK events, you know, some of our biggest events now are two hundred fifty, five hundred, maybe a thousand people. They're waived. You know, we we don't have these mass. You know, these these genuine mass gatherings that perhaps mm. survival of the fittest Wembley, you know, twenty sixteen. You know, we had eighteen thousand mm. people in a day. You know, that that would be a scary scenario for us to look at in in the COVID world. Um, but equally, you know, at some point that will also be fine. But you know, we're just not quite there yet. Because going yeah. back to that, then, because because that is huge numbers for an, an obstacle race. Um, I assume the biggest in the world. Um, I think at the time it was the biggest like one day event. Oh yeah, I mean I'd, I'd have thought by some distance as well because there aren't many countries on earth that can put that many people in an obstacle race. Um, maybe Germany potentially, but yeah, going back to then, like why? How, how have you transitioned, and why have you transitioned out of Survivor the Fittest so quickly? Because it. It had been going along for 10 years. First race I did, first obstacle race. Um, but how how did that pan out into what it is now? Um, yeah, it, it was it was a bit of an evolution. I mean, if we go all the way back to the beginning of Rat Race, our, I mean, even the name Rat Race, it sort of came from our urban roots. You know, 
the mm. original Rat Race Urban Adventure, which was the first event we ever did in 2004, was this sort of quirky urban adventure race, you know, running, biking, climbing, kayaking, cycling down these big flights of steps in, in, the, in the city of Edinburgh. And, and that was, uh, you know, what I perceived at the time to be sort of innovative. And, and that was our kind of shtick. You know, that was hence the irony of the name, the Rat Race. Um, in, 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 you know, and the survival of the Fitter series kind of came off the back of that. You know, we were doing this stuff in an urban setting. Uh, we were approached uh, whenever it was, 2008, I think it was, by Men's Health to say, look, guys, you know, we, we see what you're doing here. You know, is there any chance we can partner with you on something that's a little bit more running based? And so we came up with this concept for an urban assault course, um, you know, and that just went and went and went. And the sort of the rise and subsequent fall of OCR, you know, we were kind of charting a, a similar path to that. I think we got started with Bible, I think it was 08, you know, which was kind of just before the rise of Spartan and Tough Mudder, et cetera. Spartan mm. training then, but, but they weren't massive and Tough Mudder was, was a couple of years after. Um, and obviously Tough Guy had been around, but obstacle racing as, as a genre hadn't really, you know, been a thing. And we had this urban obstacle race and, you know, the numbers kind of grew, um, you know, exponentially really from that initial event in Nottingham. And with a strong partnership with Men's Health, with sponsorship that was very strong as well, it was a huge commercial business unit for us, you know, and we'd spent a long time concentrating on it because of that, really. Um, the rest of the rat race portfolio grew as well. We were doing lots of other stuff, but survival was a real kind of linchpin. And I think, I don't know, if a few things probably um, kind of came in. Because um, they were so good. Like, JD, did you ever do one? Oh, we lost JD. Oh, JD, did you ever do? Did you Sorry, ever do one? <laughs> no, 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 I've only ever done one obstacle <laughs> race, David, and you were there. Oh man, they, honestly, those races were so. Did the Nottingham one three times, Edinburgh once, and then I think you back won to see Wembley. Times, didn't you? Yes, yeah, Nottingham, yeah. Um, yeah. Not that's that's before good people did it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but oh yeah, they were they were just so perfect for for everyone, really. Yeah, you good could, entry level. Good bit of fun. Yeah, amazing. Oh, yeah, so um, I just wanted to see if Jenny had done it, just to get a sense. That, yeah, so, uh, sorry, as, as you were saying, <laughs> Jim, carry on, sorry. No, it was, um, yeah, it, it was great. And, you know, the, the whole kind of urban thing was good for us because it was different. You know, we were genuinely doing, you know, we were the guys that did the urban obstacle races. Um, and I think that proximity in the city, that, that brought us a lot of people. It brought us a lot of people that didn't necessarily know us. Um and perhaps through that whole tenure, they didn't necessarily know we were behind it. You know, it's a very heavily branded thing, um, but it did mm. bring us a lot of consumers. It brings bring a lot of customers and their first touch point with Rat Race was survival. And, and from there, all these other kind of, we've always evolved, you know, we've not, you know, we've never defined ourselves as an OCR company or, a, or an ultra company or a 10K company or a road running company. You know, what we do has always just been a Rat Race event. And at the time when survival came along, that was just, all oh, right, well, a rat race event right well this is going well so we'll do a few more so you know the whole kind of ocr thing sort of came and went and we never really defined ourselves within it you know we were never really part of that mm. kind of gang um we just did what we thought people wanted and, and you know urban obstacle races was was just that um and then i think you know there was a couple of things that, that happened really one of them was it, the the obstacle racing space did come become quite competitive and, and we you know, we found ourselves, we, we thought the answer was to become ever more elaborate with our obstacle creations, you know, sort of trying to build mm. a cathedral out of matchsticks and bits of scaffolding and all this. <laughs> stuff. 
And I think, you know, once we ended up, I think it was around 2010, 2011, that, you know, we were marketing survival as this as this 10K race with 100 obstacles in it. And we did, you know, we had over 100 obstacles in this 10K course, and it was just bloody expensive to operate. And, and we kind of almost, you know, we just got our knickers in a twist a little bit. It was like, look, we're overcomplicating, mm. you know. But as soon as you start setting the bar that high, that's where the bar is. And you have to always do, you know, bring these elaborate constructions out and, you know, travelators and, you know, things that are kind of, you know, 100 foot tall and all the rest of it. And it just wasn't mm. really sustainable. And I guess then, you know, the numbers did start to drop off in some of those events. And, and we thought, right, well, you know, perhaps the evolution is elsewhere. And that actually took us back to the mountains and, you know, with concepts like the Man Versus series, where we sort of almost tried to fuse a bit of, obstacle stuff with the natural you know the natural world um and you know the numbers came with us um and i think people that maybe had founders with survival and, and and stuff like that entry level you know they came with us back into the outdoors and you know of course ultra you know has, has evolved massively over the last five to ten years and we saw that and we were a part of that as well you know the wall has always been the wall hadrian's wall ultra that we run it's always been very strong for us you know it's been going on now about 10 years um you know and bringing on that type of product into the portfolio it's almost felt that the customer has sort of been coming with us a little bit on a journey um you know, from... do, you, do you track data of, of things do you have um yeah. you know your your lifetime value customers and like is, is there a larger large percentage of people who have because you know off the top of my head i can think of people like adam jacobs and yeah. rich palmer who've, who've done exactly that who've who've done the ocr who've done survival then man v and are now doing proper ultras like, well yeah and, you... and they're actually going further than that and they're coming with us to places like mongolia and panama and i think that's because of that that trust that journey i mean clearly i'm, I'm not naive enough to think that somebody just enters a rat race event that's all they do but i think that that level of sort of brand trust has been there and the fact that they've trusted us at Wembley or Nottingham or whatever in survival means they do now trust us. These, you know, these kind of what you would call, I guess, more punchy, you know, out there destinations that, that we're starting to put in the market. But yeah, hundred percent. You know, those guys that were there at the beginning are, are are still there, coming back, you know, for events with us, definitely. And they're pushing themselves. Because one thing I think you guys were, uh, you did very well not to lean into. You've never been the hardest the gurest the argus it's always it's always been because I, I think that's what really what did in a lot of the ocr races as soon as you were labeled as properly ocr you then opened yourself up for huge criticism from every ocr geek um yeah. whereas by avoiding that you almost you didn't have to follow the rules of how the monkey bar should be or you know, all, all these other things that I, that really bogged down a lot of the other races out there. Um, and when when you went into ultras, what what options did you look at? Like how how did you decide what was going to be right for you and for, for the customer? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, one, one of the sort of the litmus tests that I always you know kind of saw on obstacle stuff is you, you'd see the photos of the start line of our events and kind of everyone most people would have their shirt on. You know, and you look at, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you at and most people would want most people to have their shirt right, as well, exactly, looking yeah. around. Um, yeah, so yeah, I, I think that that kind of says a lot about the demographic that we were attracting, and you know, perhaps that, that we continue to attract. And, and again, when we go into ultra, you know, we're not 
we're not about suffer fests, you know, and we're, we're not necessarily about something just being arbitrary. You know, the fact that a lot of our events uh, are about a journey, you know, they're about an A to B, um, you know, there's a kind of almost a mission behind them, but it's about that objective. It's not about getting there the fastest. You know, we've never been in, in, in I mean, ironically, for a company called Rat Race, it's never really been about the race, you know. Um, so events like, you know, Canterbury Trails that have a sort of pilgrimage story behind it or the wall that is clearly not quite the whole of Hadrian's Wall, but, you know, sort of one end of the wall to the other ends, you know, coast to coast, to summit you know these sort of concepts this sort of objective based concept is very important to us and i think you know that that does bring us a certain customer that is looking past perhaps their own performance marked against others and are just there for the challenge itself you know yeah i mean that that's true of ultras in general isn't it that the finishing is is most people's achievement and times outside of that are then very much down to personal preference or not um and how yeah how how do you do because there there's i've I've always got to worry that in your head you think of something cool and then you try and turn it into you think of like one moment and then you try and turn it into an entire race like has 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 there often been times like have 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 they always worked the concepts like i know you had 30 (laughs) weekends that you were planning and I, I went on the the Goodwin Sand one which was incredible but yeah. took 10 attempts to, to get a speedboat yeah. into the middle of the Solent and um, there was a question in there somewhere I think is the reason that we didn't run it perhaps that it was 10 attempts and that you were there David I don't know Maybe there's a good lowest common denominator <laughs> <laughs> how have you... Goodwin Sands didn't happen. David, yeah. No, it's but true. How... It's kind how do you of these. Yeah, it, it's like I liken it's trying to put together a hit records album. You know, you want to you want to make sure that everyone's like a you know platinum selling um, you know greatest hit. But sometimes you get you know a few flops, a few B sides, um, and we're definitely not immune to that. You know, we we did an event. It's last year, actually. We we had an event called Girls Get Physical, um, spelt F-I-Z-Z-I-C-A-L. Oh, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> he decided yeah. on the spelling. Did, did, did you Physical. consult Ali? Nice. Did you consult Ali before you... Uh, was was yeah, it pink? We, 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 we did consult Ali, yeah. I, I, I don't know whether she was with us or against us on that one, but um, <laughs> might have been one of the ones she didn't turn up to. But actually, it was, yeah, it was, a you know, it, it, it didn't go it, it, the event itself went very well but you know we had joe wiley playing a dj set afterwards you know we, we had we had loads of people that really enjoyed it but it, it just didn't sell and i think you know we'd managed there to perhaps you know perhaps sort of enter the lion's den of political correctness a little bit but also it yeah it, it just wasn't enough you know in, in the, the market just just didn't want it you know um, what was the format it was a it was a 5k um lapped ob- obstacle based kind of funding games entry level race um you know people could do 5k they could do 10k there was lots of camping uh, there was clearly some prosecco involved hence the uh, the fizz analogy um at the end and and there was a party afterwards with joe wiley playing so it was kind of like a dirty weekend light for, mm. for the ladies um and yeah it just didn't hit the spot you know and there's been a few like that you know there has and we're ne- we're not going to get it right the whole time but i think you know like any events company we want to make sure that 
we put our best foot forward on the R&D. You know, some of it's about timing, I think. You know, we've there's probably some concepts now that, you know, I've got in my head that we might not launch for a couple of years or that we might have launched and we just haven't because I don't think the market's quite right for it. And equally, there might be stuff that we bring back. I think you, you actually asked me a couple of years ago when, when we spoke there, you know, do you, we ever see the Rat Race Urban Adventure coming back? You know, that oh, so good. And I do. I, I see that at the time that we did it, it was orienteering. But now you've got GPS. You know, I mean, who goes orienteering now? You know, it's, it's not it's not something in the kind of you know in, in the general sort of circulation of the population. But everyone's got a smartphone. You know, everybody understands GPS apps. And, and I think that could be mega. It could be absolutely mega. So that's something that might come full circle. And I think that's the beauty of rat race is that we're not bound by a genre. You know, we can just do what we think is is the right stuff, you know. Um, and, and actually, with my assumption with the the rat race was it was just so labour heavy that the number of staff you had to have for each checkpoint. Yeah, Whereas yeah, now, yeah. because technology is so much better, you could actually use the use an app so that yeah, you don't yeah. have to necessarily have someone at each spot. So, because that to me is well, I, I, the soldiers challenge the last one I did, and that to me was my perfect race because yeah. it was as you say, orienteering around London, where you then had to do things like shave your leg or yeah, you had yeah. to do some dancing or shoot shoot a rifle. It was just so yeah. whack. Abseiling off the Imperial War Museum. And it was, it was, it was fantastic. Yeah. And behind that, there's like, you know, got to talk to 10 boroughs, got to talk to 30 venues, you know, the, the work was mega. And I think we could mm. actually simplify that now um, and bring a slightly slim down version to the market that's just it's just fun you know but equally pretty physical you know i mean you, you would have clocked up a lot of miles that night you probably would have clocked up 13 14 miles um i think we're more than that even yeah in a three-hour period and doing all these controls so uh, yeah i you know it, it's a sort of matrix and it's one of the joys of the job for me really especially with the bucket list stuff you know going places and trying to create event concepts out of a place that we think we've got something um yeah, Panama coast to coast. I mean, it took us three or four trips to Panama to actually work out what we wanted to do there. You know, we started with this idea of potentially doing something across the Panama Canal. So we went and you know, basically ran the Panama Canal or ambled it slowly. Um, and it was great, you know, swashbuckling adventures. But we realized that it's not going to make an event. It was, it was, there's, you know, again, too many permissions. It's not actually long enough. And we ended up this epic journey, you know, across Panama where we bushwhacked an entire new route. So that whole process for me personally is part is that of a phrase bushwhacked. bushwhacked yeah you never heard that is it yeah bushwhacked i just know the bushwhacker trial that's the bush tucker trial okay. <laughs> <laughs> getting your jungle vernacular all confused now it's because i've got a friend called bushwhacker no she's called burning bush <laughs> oh i didn't know i don't know <laughs> story um <laughs> But when we have, when are these countries, are they do they get it? What when you when you initially start talking to the is it the foreign office? Like how how does that work? How do you how do they respond generally? Well, you know, again, different approaches. I mean, you know, remember we're we're talking about relatively small groups of people, so it's not as if we're coming in and saying, look, we want to shut your entire infrastructure down and close roads and do this and do that. You know, a lot of this stuff is very, very light touch, which allows us to be very nimble with our processes. Um, you know, something like the concept that we do in Mongolia on a frozen lake, mm. you know, clearly that there's significant safety implications and there's a and, and there's the cultural implications. You know, I, I couldn't walk into Mongolia and just 
pull that event off. I, I need a very, very good handler to work with me to do it. And we've got one and we, you know, we've, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic operation, you know, that helps us to do that in Mongolia. Um, in Panama, it, it was it was a fascinating journey, actually. I mean, that that, that event, I actually, you know, I, I flew to Panama myself, um, learned a bit of Spanish, just dusted off my Los Cervezas Perfibor, touch of and and knocked on some doors, you know, and and found a couple of companies that I thought, you know, that they 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 seem like good guys, you know, had a few beers, chatted it through, you know, one door leads to another door leads to the office of the Panama Canal, tourist board, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden you've got some momentum into a project, you know, um, and, and sometimes it goes that way. You know, you, you have a kernel of an idea and you just run with it and and it takes you down, you know, it might take you down some rabbit holes and it might end up going nowhere or it might end up, you know, becoming a fully fledged event. And that sort of, you know, for, again, for me personally, that kind of thrill of the chase of, of having an idea and really seeing it through to the project's conclusion for me, that's the essence of event management. That's why I'm in this game, you know, because um, I love that. You know, it's it's completion of something that you've literally taken from nothing and turned it turned it on. And something like someone like Panama, like how how do you assess danger? Because my understanding is it's one of those regions where there is a lot of border action, shall we say, from from people that you just what, just don't want you to be there and um we'll ask no questions uh, like how how do you get a sense of of what a country's truly like yeah i mean that's about dealing with local experts really and that's no different from the uk where you know we may have less border incursions um but you know we we have you know there, there are very particular circumstances in any local community uh, be they political rest um you know local sensitivities infrastructure um, I mean, Panama is a um, is a small country, but it's you know it's defined at one end with by a border with Costa Rica, which is actually where we're operating, and at the other end with a border with Colombia, which is you know the one that you're referring to, which is in mm. places far more lawless. Um, and there's all sorts of stuff that you know that goes on in the jungle down there, uh, in particular areas. But again, you know the, the Panamanian authorities, you know they're they're pretty switched on to what's going on. You know they've got a lot of funding. You know there's a lot of human trafficking, for example, that happens through Central American countries and, you know, the government, you know, their, their resources, you know, they're there, you know, they're working and, and and there is knowledge and you can, you know, avoid this by by tapping into the right knowledge. Now, we're, for our event, actually operating at the other end of the country, don't have the same issues there, you know, security wise, you know, but there are clearly issues that we have to deal with. Um, and, and, you know, for example, we're dealing in a national park where, national park authorities tell us well there's no one living in there but there is you know we, we've been in there you know there's this whole villages um and, and that kind of you know physical on the ground knowledge is is very very important um and you can only get that. do they because okay. they wouldn't they didn't they just didn't what they weren't aware they were living there or is yeah, that exactly. because they some of this jungle so remote that you know the, the, the national park guys they don't they just don't go in there that often so they, they weren't you know they're not necessarily aware of communities that have sprouted up um and and, and you know in, in central american countries like panama you know there are certain sort of indigenous areas uh, called comarcas you know that tribes will you know that that, that will be their kind of their, their historic area that they almost um self-govern some of them are are actually you know self-governing um, um entities but there are other areas, such as some of the national parks, where there'll be more informal settlement, you know, where people have kind of almost spilled over the Kamakas and they've kind of just been increasing their 
not their territorial game. They, they've just moved a bit further afield with their family. You know, there's no border as far as they see it. They've just moved, you know, north, south, east, west into the jungle a little bit. And as people have encroached and started to farm, started to take their animals and their livestock, you know, communities have sprouted up. So, you know, you don't get a sense of that unless you actually physically go and see it or unless you deal with people that, that know what's going on on the ground. Um, and what did they make of you all popping out of the jungle? <laughs> well, yeah, there was there, there was a few offers to carry our backpacks, actually, which, to be honest, at that point, I didn't turn down. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, that that's important, you know, so so now now that we do know that, you know, there is dialogue, you know, with those communities, there's dialogue with the farmers in the area, there's dialogue with the National Park. Um, it's all very positive, you know, Um but we can only get under the skin of that by doing significant setup. And, you know, that takes a couple of years. Um, you know, I think I started mm. going, well, we were, I should say we were meant to do the first Panama event this March, but obviously we've had to push it back. But I think I started going to Panama three years ago in terms of trying to set this project up. So there's a very long lead time for these things. And with with Mongolia, because that, that's a holy lake, isn't it? So you're not yeah. allowed to pee on it. You're not allowed to do certain other things. like. How, what what reassurances did you have to take for them to be happy for you to go on the Holy Lake? Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that was a, that was a big liaison job through our, through our partners, you know, who we work with. And they're, you know, they, 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 they they've been operating in Mongolia for over 20 years. You know, they, they've got their own full-time operation there. Um, Lake Hovsgol, the area that we operate in, in, in far northwestern Mongolia, it's a very shamanic region. Um, and, and there are these local traditions and, you know, you have to tread, have to tread carefully with, with that sort of thing. And it's also an ex-Soviet country, which means it has kind of departments for a lot of stuff. So, for example, things like ice thickness, you know, th there's 30 years of ice thickness data. You know, so there's a few no knowns. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's all there. Um, and actually, surprisingly, it's not, you know, I mean, global warming being what it is, th this data is very, very consistent over the last 30 years. Um you know, and, and and stuff like that, it just comes into play. And, and, you know, when I went there the first time, I remember there was a shaman, you know, and she came over and, and she did this shamanic ceremony. We were on this tiny little island in the middle of the lake. It was, it was minus 47 that night. I mean, it was really, really cold. And, and mm. this woman, you know, she actually drove there. She drove across the lake, you know, because you can drive across certain parts of it, which is why we use it. Uh, it's used as a route in, in the winter. And, and I remember her doing this this really ethereal ceremony. It, it was quite it was quite unnerving. It was absolutely it, it was actually it was it was unnerving. Um, mm. and, and she ended up sort of getting into this this trance and and, and and literally throwing herself into this fire. And and she'd come with these two guys, these two sort of minders. And at that point, you know, we realised what the minders were for, and they were basically to sort of bring her back from the edge. And you know, they literally <laughs> pulled her out of this fire. And oh, you know, that level of kind of um, it, was, it was the real deal, absolutely the real deal. And, and you know, th this level of sort of cultural engagement is really important for the concepts that we're that we're giving people. You know, this is as much about going to that far northwestern corner of Outer Mongolia as it is doing the challenge. So for us to really kind of, um, you know, it, it, it physically immerse ourselves in that is important. And, and from a planning and sort of risk management point of view, you know, I kind of lent, lent round to the guy, you know, our handler, a guy called David, um, as, as this shamanic ritual was going on. And as the Mongolians started eyeing each other, everyone was a bit nervous about how kind of off-piece she was going. And I, I just sort of said, David, are we, 
are we cool with the shaman? You know, I, I didn't know what I didn't know what she was saying. And it, you know, there was that mm. sort of very real, like, you know, what, what's going on here? You know, is, is everybody going to panic? And you know, I, I don't, I didn't know how significant it was. And you know, sure enough, afterwards it was fine, and you know, everything was okay. But that, you know, that that's that's now a factor. You know, that, that we will that we will consider. You know, in our travels to far northwestern Mongolia and things like that. Again, you don't get under the surface of that until until you get out there. You know. Um, or, or unless you go to Glastonbury for a weekend. <laughs> that's true. It's one yeah. or the other. The <laughs> shaman. Nineties fame. And, and with um, because the level of of coldness is, you you just don't get that in races other than people who are going on projects to the poles. It's a proper challenges. Like how how have you managed to? If you think of us as racers, most of us will spend some money on kit, but a lot of us will spend as little money on kit as possible. Yeah. Um, like how, how have you man? Like has that been a real issue for you, where you can go to a desert and actually not having the right kit isn't great, but actually it's more it's it's fine because people just have to make sure that they're drinking enough, and that's that's different. Whereas not having enough kit in someone like Mongolia is really quite hazardous. Like how have you managed to control that and, and what have people been like in their approach? Yeah, I mean we that's a that's a big part of a lot of these. Um and the kit list is is clearly quite comprehensive and the expectation on people to play by the rules on that is is absolutely sacrosanct. You know, we I mean on, on the Panama event, for example, to, to give you that example, we we actually do a full online um Zoom interview with people and we get them to show their kit. And the jungle specialists that we have, you know, will sit on the call with them and, and you know, and look at this stuff. And and it's more, you know, it's as much to do with advice to say, all oh, right, well, this hammock you've got is great. It does this or, you know, why not try that? And, you know, it, it, it's it's not necessarily just about checking. It's to make sure that there's a good informational flow. Um, and somewhere in Mongolia, yeah, you know, you, you have to have, you know, a sleeping bag that is comfort rated to minus 20. You just have to. There's no point trying to skimp that because, you know, the wheels are going to come off um, and we won't let people get into that situation so you know the that that message is received loud and clear by people that that enter these events and and the i guess the time that we spend with them pre-departure on 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 laying these things out laying these things down you know doing webinars you know making sure there's a feedback loop people can talk to us about this stuff and and it's quite in depth it's quite detailed stuff um Mm -hmm. but again you know there's there's companies out there that can rent you this kit you know you don't have to go out and buy a 600 pound down jacket you know you can rent one um, and that's that's great gear, you know. It's just the gear you need, you know. Same with sleeping bags, um, but yeah, you know, the the, ba- the bags from Mongolia do fill up pretty quickly with a lot of stuff with feathers or air. Um, you just need the inf- insulation, you know. Um, mm. And and you know, having said minus forty seven, I mean, it, when when we went to do the initial recce, it was minus forty seven. That was in January. We actually do the event in March, and you know, the last couple of years, you know, the sort of the, the general ambient temperatures probably get down to about minus twenty, minus twenty five at night. Which clearly is still very cold, but is not is not quite the same. Um, and the ice thickness it actually sort of grows through the spring. So we sort of go at the time when statistically you've you've, you've almost got like the best temperature sweet spot, but almost but also the deepest ice as well. So safety wise, we're trying to balance you know the time of year as well to to get it right. Mm. And and since I guess since we last spoke, the the Black Lives Matter movement has has suddenly. Re- cropped up in the uk and everyone and one of the things that we've been talking about is almost accessibility 
two ultras for for people from more ethnic backgrounds who might not necessarily have the the funding the um the privileges that we have is is that something that that rat racer is that something you're you're, you're taking into account in some of the events like uh, do you think we're going to see an increasingly white list of participants really because it, as they get more expensive or and is, is that something that you can potentially counter well i think i think our biggest counter to accessibility as a whole you know whether that's ethnicity or, or people's you know finances or, or even just like training and their, and their confidence as well um the biggest thing for us is well it's twofold it, it's lead time so it's putting things on sale far into the future you know where people have time to consider it potentially train towards it and potentially look at finances and it's also you know we've put in place across pretty much everything we do now a monthly installment plan so whereas the price is still the price i think you know we can all agree if you, you know, if you pay for your mortgage monthly or your car monthly or whatever it is mm. it just feels different it feels much more accessible and we've seen mm. that you know we've put a couple of projects on sale from our bucket list for 2022 recently which you know we've, we've never put stuff on sale two, you know literally two and a half years in advance and they've sold out and you know one of them's in iceland one of them's in the arctic circle and you know part of that i think clearly is the destination and, and this sort of lure of adventure far off in you know post-covid land but but the other thing is the accessibility you know you can you can access these challenges for the same price as your monthly council tax bill or or, or, or significantly less and i think that for me is very important. That that's going to open up for us a far wider accessibility to our challenges, which is great. It's absolutely fantastic because you know people don't have to take the plunge right now. You know they don't necessarily have to know they have they have the cash. They've just got a you know got a dream and 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 it's there. You know, it's there for them in, in two three years time. So yeah, that's our I guess that's our policy on that, and and it seems to be working. It seems to be um, to draw, perhaps drawing in a slightly wider contingent of of people. And, and how would you say you how would you compare the customer of the bucket list to the customer that you started with? Do they tend to be um, are they a lot fitter? Are they um, do they tend to be of a, a sort or? Well, you know, some of them are literally, as we were saying before, literally the same people that have come with us on this journey you know, from survival and, and, and other kind of gateway drug events, I guess you could call them, in, into things that are that are more elaborate. But I, I think the thing that defines everybody when when we when we get to these locations is there's there's been yeah I mean we, we've had rebooking rates on on these bucket list events like we've never seen before. And again, part of that I'd like to think is is good concepts and, and good locations, but some of it is the group dynamic. And if you have thirty or forty people together that are of mm. a particular mindset and they're sort of treating this more of a of an expedition of a trip you know than a race you know all that kind of gung-ho mentality is sort of stripped away a bit and, and even salomon man you know that that is there you know i mean let's face it you know we mm. do get some guys that want to come and sort of win quote unquote and that's fine you know there's a massive leveler in these locations and some of it is is just the locations are really fierce and, and they have to you know, everybody kind of has to get on board with that and, you know, have to follow the lowest common denominator about what we're doing when we get out there. But a lot of it is to do with the fact that, you know, at the end of the stage, people are back with beer, you know, they're socialising, they're getting to know each other over this sort of week-long multi-sport, multi-day experience. And I think that, to me, is the person that we're getting. They, they may be from different walks of life. They may be from different economic backgrounds. They may be from different 
um, sporting backgrounds. You know, some of them may have trained, some of them definitely haven't trained as much as others. But the rat race way is, has always been about getting to the start line. Sorry, it's a bit of a cliche, but like, you know, getting to the start line versus getting to the finish line. And these events are kind of no different. Like we're, we're trying to put, you know, clearly we want people to get round, but we're trying to put an element of sort of hand railing into the concepts where people can come and have a pop. You know, mm. th- there's a lot of stuff to stop somebody walking into one of these things without knowing what they're getting themselves in- into clearly. I mean, you, you just, you, you, you know, you can't fail to see it <laughs> before you get there. Mm. Commitment's involved. But I think it's almost sort of testament to that, that, that people are rocking up and they are, they're getting it, you know, and, and they're having a really good time together. Um, and I don't know if that necessarily is because they're like-minded. I just think the whole experience is sort of, is drawing them closer and it's leveling them up, you know? Well, I mean, talking of people just rocking up, um, I haven't spoken about comic relief yet. Yes. <laughs> or was it sport relief? <laughs> yeah, the, the ultimate rocking up extravaganza. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that was, that, it was understandable when you switch locations from desert, from to the desert from Mongolia, that obviously they wouldn't necessarily be prepared for that terrain. But were you surprised by the the apparent lack of of almost any training by some of the individuals yeah I, I was a bit if i'm honest i mean i think we yeah you know these guys did phenomenally well you know let's let's face it they they thought they were going to mongolia and they thought you know they, they'd been you know ice training skating in north london and you know literally a week later you know they're off they're on a plane to namibia and i think there's almost a little because you know you get there you get to namibia it's it's a sort of tourism based you know, Southern African country, the vibe is good. You know, it's, you know, you get out of the airport, it's warm. You know, they thought they were going to be walking into sort of minus 20, minus 30. They were walking into plus 30. It's like, oh, you know, almost a whole sense of security potentially because like, oh, it's warm here. It's, you know, we can have a gin and tonic after this sort of thing. And that's not what it's like. You know, that's that's absolutely not what the Namib desert is like. And they found that out pretty quickly. But, you know, I think perhaps there was a little bit of that. You know, it's like, oh, we're not going to Mongolia anymore. We're going somewhere hot. That that sounds nice. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, and and yeah, trying to sort of strip that down. I, I think you know, there were there were. It was a mixed group. It, it was a mixed ability. I mean, arguably the most mixed ability group that we'd seen, to be honest, on some of our events. You know, there were people there that that clearly were fit. You know, they they were they were fine. You know, they would have been fine, and they were fine, and. You know, mentally and physically, they were in great shape. And, and there were others that just, they just didn't know what was coming. They didn't know what to expect. And, and clearly for us as a group, you know, we, we we only have certain contact with these guys pre-event. You know, we, we couldn't possibly know exactly what their level of conditioning and, and, and sort of general expectation was. Um, and it was fascinating. It was absolutely fascinating. And did you get a sense that because there were what, 10 or so of them, did you get a sense that lack of preparation was that down to the individual or was that down to, to think a lack of communication from the, the sport relief team? Or do you think that was almost intentional to ensure that they were going to have people that were really going to struggle? Um, yeah, there were seven of them in total. And, and yeah, I think it's a mixture of everything, really. I think that, you know, the, you can't put, you know, if you'd, if you'd have put a load of people on the start line, then you, you were just going to breeze this. Well, it's not going to make good TV. You know, that's part of it. And people want to see the struggle of adversity. That That's where the, the fundraising is coming from. You know, it has to be a has to be a punchy challenge. And arguably, this probably was 
or at least punchiest yet, really. Um, uh, uh, but but equally, you know, they 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 need to be up for it. They need to know that there is a certain physicality coming here and somewhere in between all of that. And, you know, you can't be responsible for everybody's individual preparation, you know, just like you can't be on, on, on any event, you know, you sort of got to take, you know, what, what you're given to a degree and that's where the event systems kick in, you know, and, and making sure that you've got a good system to deal with that. So I, I think it was yeah, some of all parts, really, you know, perhaps there was some preparation that could have been significantly better on the, on the, the role of the individual, but equally, it had to make good TV. I think it did make good TV. It was a punchy challenge. It had to be punchy. Clearly, it was going to be in Mongolia, and they were probably all a bit more conditioned for, for knowing that was coming. But in hindsight, would it have been tougher in Mongolia? Maybe, actually. And, and physically, I think, you know, the distance and the sand and the general attrition of the desert, it was probably more physical. But that whole constant exposure to low temperatures, to the wind, you know, just being tired all the time in Mongolia, you know, eat anything's a hassle in the cold, you know, taking your gloves off, all that sort of stuff. I think that would have ground people down as much, if not more, mm. than, than what they got in Namibia. Well, I was sat with Pete, uh, Pete Reese, the weekend you were out there. And when we were talking about what they were actually doing, he, I mean, Pete's, Pete's a warrior anyway, but he <laughs> was fairly, fairly adamant that the first cycle, was nigh on impossible for, for the celebrities because it's just so so mentally grueling because you think yeah. of a bike as being easier than running but actually out there it, it's such slow work and there's no fast work whatsoever you're either being shaken or you're moving at one mile an hour because of the the, the sand so thick um was was the route was that forced upon you more than it would have been if you'd have had longer to plan because that, that first day just seemed to absolutely destroy people. It, it did. The first day did. And, and I, I, I mean, we actually, obviously we based this event on our bucket list race to the wreck proposition, which is, is longer. So we shortened the route. Um, it was the same amount of time to do it, but we shortened the route. And actually that first bike day in race to the wreck is, is 140 Ks long. And we shortened it to 57. And, you know, I, I thought, OK, well, it's got to it's it's got to be enough. You know, if you shorten it any more than that, mm. well, we could have only really shortened it to 37 because of where we would have to have extracted people. So, you know, 37 was, was that there's there's very much a judgment call there in terms of what it, ha it has to be punchy enough. Now, it had to sound punchy enough as well. It's, it's hard. That's it. Yeah, people that's will right. hear the number more than they understand the terrain. You're dead right, yeah. But Pete's right. You know, this cycling, a lot of it is like cycling through porridge. You know, I mean, if you say to a mountain biker 57K, he'd be like, well, what's the problem? But if you're cycling, you know, the whole time in first gear, like you're constantly on a resistance setting, it, it's, it's bloody, and it's 40 degrees. I mean, it was, it was really, really hot, you know. So it was an absolute baptism of fire. And, you know, in hindsight, yeah, was, was that too hard? Well, it had to be hard and we had to start it at a particular location, we had to build a camp and we had to base it on something. So, you know, some of the guys got round it, um, some of them didn't. Some of them were frankly never going to get round it, wh whatever we put in, in front of them. Um, was that frankly or Frankie? <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. Um, you know, so yeah, I, a tough one. But but actually, on the day we were bold. We were we were bold some pretty interesting. Um, 
um, anomalies, shall we say? You know, it, it, I mean, there's no rain in the Namib Desert, but they'd had some unseasonable, unseasonable rain in, in Namibia. And, and part of that bike course that day was, was a dry riverbed. That was actually meant to be the easy bit. That was the final 20 kilometers. Um, but we had this enormous storm the night before. I mean, it was it was apocalyptic. You wouldn't have seen it on the um, on the on the TV program. I think in the end they decided it. It's very hard to explain a a, ra- a thunderstorm, a rainstorm, <laughs> driest place on earth. But they just didn't even bother. Um, but you know, this helicopter came in with its sleds, and, and you know, we were literally holding the tents down for a couple of hours. I mean, it was apocalyptic. The next day, as as you know, one of the guys there, Jack, you know, an incredible desert driver, man of very few words, you know, as we drove up to the rim of the Cuseb River Valley, you know, which the last time it had flowed was 11 years ago. He just said, shit, wow, Cuseb is now a river. And, you know, it was flowing. You know, this river was flowing. And, and you know, we had to come up with a very, very quick contingency on that. I mean, the contingency was basically no one's going in it. Um, and that actually shortened the route further. But, you know, it, it was... Yeah, it, it, stuff like that just, you know, it happens. Um, and with seven days to turn the event around, you know, we, we had to we had to roll with that. So, yeah, day one on the bikes, it was definitely tough. It was definitely at the um, top end, I think, of, of, of the tolerances there. Um, and, and, and do you get a sense from, because you've seen now two sets of, two sets of different races go through there. It does being a celebrity and does being on camera, do you think it makes it, does it make it harder? Is it a different, like, are they on and off? Are they, do they have extra pressure? Oh, it's, it's relentless for these guys. I mean, they, you know, I, it's absolutely relentless. You know, they've got the physical challenge and, and they've got, you know, the, the idea that they've just been thrown, they've almost been thrown into this to see what, you know, see what they make of it. And, and that's all, literally all of it's being recorded. You know, they've got a mic on them the entire day. Um, and the film crew are on them as much as they can be, you know, and, and that's the film crew's job. That's what they're there to do. Everybody knows that, you know, everybody's on board with that. You know, the celebrities know that, you know, they're going to, you know, there's going to be some laughter. There's going to be some tears. There's going to be a few moments that they don't necessarily want to be caught on camera. But again, that's why they're there. Everyone's part of the same kind of output, you know? So yeah, you know, the, the pressure was incredible really um i mean i certainly wouldn't wouldn't have liked it um you know in, in terms of just ha- you know being on on film the whole time whatever happens um mm. but they know you know they know that's coming i mean it, clearly they, they know that's part of the deal um but it's it by no means makes it any easier absolutely not and you know hats off to them you know these guys you know they, they don't get paid for doing this you know they come and they do it for charity and and whilst you know clearly there's an element of you know people want to do it to raise their profile you know this is this is hard. You know, it's tough. It's hard stuff. And they they have to work bloody hard, um, you know, both for the TV output and, and for the physical challenge. And, you know, certainly for, for the sport relief guys and the TV guys, you know, everybody's got the deliverables. You know, there was live broadcasts going out from the middle of the desert. You know, there's a guy there from the one show, you know, who every time he, you know, got his satellite gear out, you know, something seemed to go wrong. And, and that guy had four million viewers sitting at home, you know, that were waiting for his two minute segment. You know, he was under a shitload of pressure. You know, there's a lot of that stuff going on that you just never see, but it's all going on and it's all for the greater good of raising the cash. Um, everybody played their part. And how, how much harder is it to to be a race organiser with the demands of television? Like, is, is there often conflict there? Were there, were there lots of discussions that were heated? And uh, does it make it a lot more complex than just taking 10, 12, 7 people to do the race? 
unquestionably it makes that there's far more um there's just far more deliverables you know if you're there doing an event you know with seven people 30 people whatever it is you know you're there to get them from a to b safely that that's the role um, and hopefully they have a great time and, and they will um with this clearly that was that was a significant part of the role but equally you know we're there to make sure that the tv crew get what they want and, and also are safe you know there's there's 30 people there in a crew that you know there's a lot of vehicles bump, bumping around in the desert you know there's there's a significant number of people in the entourage that also need looking after and they need managing um, and then there's obviously the whole point that we're there you know which is charitable output so i think you know, we we developed a really good working relationship with the TV guys and with Sport Relief, and and that was you know testament to everybody involved that it that it did work the way it did, and they trusted us, you know, to turn this thing on a sixpence from Mongolia. I mean, you know, no one really had a lot of options. You know, COVID had destroyed that project. So like, right, well, what are we going to mm. do? Well, you know, we've got this idea. Should we do this? And whilst it was sort of minus thirty to plus thirty, and that's you know that was a very different challenge logistically underneath it. There was quite a lot of similarity with Mongolia which allowed us, you know, it's a sort of vehicle-based um, logistic behind it, you know, where instead of driving vehicles on an ice lake, we had vehicles in the desert. So using those similarities, using what we'd already planned for together as a group, you know, between TV company and, and Sport Relief, there was a significant amount of trust there, you know, between everybody that, that this could work. Um, and, it, and it did, you know. So, you know, sure, there was some heated discussions, but everybody was always on the same page. And, you know, I think you have to be, you know, you just you, you're going into a really serious environment. You're going in with a really high profile project. You know, it's got to be nailed on. Um, and that that was what we were there for. really. And we, we get a input into who comes next year then. Is that something that now that you you get a, you've got a more of a sense of how it is to work with them? And you obviously know Mongolia and, and what it's going to be more than everyone else. Is that something you can also, you know, aim for any individual, any celebrities you'd like? Or well, I'm hoping if you work on your Instagram account, David, and get a few more fans on there, maybe <laughs> you'll be going. I don't know. Um, Up to seven posts, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think you know, there's a wider question now in terms of sport relief and what what they do next. You know, post COVID, I think there's policy decisions. Mm. There'll be a lot of policy as to what you know, whether people do want to, to do these types of challenges for a while. Um, and certainly, you know, there are practical considerations right now in terms of their very, very long lead time planning, you know, in terms, mm. of, in terms of what they do. So I, I don't know. I, I would imagine probably because, you know, again, it's it's such a complex web with the celebs. It's availability. It's who, you know, who kind of sort of almost fits the profile, you know, to come out and make sure there's a good group dynamic, you know, who's going to make good TV. There's all those things. And, you know, we're not necessarily privy to that. But then, you know, it, once the list is with us, you know, we can work with that list and, and understand a little bit as to how we can support those people. You know, um, if they and, can... and if you had a, a if you had a magic wand of someone to be at the front, someone to be in the middle, someone to be at the back, who would who are the three people that you'd what name dream name to take out there? Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, my wife's not here, so. Um, <laughs> I've always, this is not just about people that I've had a thing for, by the way, but I've always had a thing for Elizabeth Banks. I think she'd be really good. I think she'd be funny. And um, yeah, she'd definitely be one I'd, I'd like to see there. Um, right now I've got in my mind, I've just got blonde haired ladies, which is. <laughs> um, I, think, I think someone like Billy Connolly, I think he'd be really, really cool. Like someone who is 
probably got something about him, but you don't quite know yet, and you don't really know which mm. way it's going to go, you know? Um, oh, third, number three, number three, who should we say? Um, do you know who I'd was really... to see someone like... Oh, okay, go ahead. No, no, go on. I'd love to see someone like Gaza or Gascoigne going out because he's, if you take these individuals who were sports stars but are now desperately unfit, yeah. it'd just be fascinating yeah, right. to get, actually get a sense of what their men- mentality is like because he was such a, a natural talent at football and just be so interesting to see whether he, does he have that drive? Did he have that drive? And how would he yeah. respond to something that's really outside his comfort zone? Yeah, that's that's huge. that's interesting actually. Like a real sort of recovery story. Um, mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, it it is fascinating. You know, the one of the guys that really impressed me on on this trip there was there was a guy there um, called called Kareem who's from EastEnders, mm. um, and I think he'd been on um, he'd been on dances. I think he might be. It was on Strictly. He was on Strictly. Uh, did pretty well, mm. and and. You know, this this is a young lad, and and on paper, you know, he he, he looked pretty fit. You know, sort of you think dancing. You know, he's kind of been in the performing arts, but actually, it's a totally different fitness from slamming mm. multi-day endurance. You know, and he was in his absolute element. You know, he was achieving more than he'd ever achieved in terms of that sort of physicality. You know, he 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 went further than he's ever gone. You know, I think the I, I can't remember what the stat was, but I think the furthest he'd run was either five or maybe 10k you know he's knocking out these huge days you know in this environment that he's never really considered going to Mm. Uh, and that kind of whole discovery you know sort of seeing that journey of personal discovery for him was you know really quite humbling And, and we see it in a lot of people in all of our events but i think you know they're the characters that you you know they surprise themselves they surprise you and that's what it's about isn't it you know yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, you, I guess to, to tie this up, come to an end, because we, uh, we've gone past the out. Where would you, um, where, where do you see Rat Race going then? Because you know, are you, is there an, a level beyond Bucket Race? Like, is there, does it get bigger? Are you going to even more extremes in the future? Yeah, I think so. I think the, the easy answer to that is yes. You know, the world's a big place. You know, I, kind of like to think of, you know, where we're going next as the sort of the fringes of the map. You know, I, I sit there sometimes on the internet, perhaps looking at things that I should not. And, um, you know, some of these places. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Why well, I say now, so I'm definitely not saying anymore. Um, yeah. <laughs> places where I'd like to go with Elizabeth Banks. Yeah. You know, the, the fringes of the map and like, that's where we're going. You know, these places that you kind of see and, and you think, oh, what's there? You know, what, what are these islands in the middle of the Pacific? And, you know, I want to know. I, I want to see what's out there. And, and if we can kind of draw a real journey on those locations and give it a sort of object, a kind of reason to go there. I'm, 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 I'm interested in that. I'm, I'm interested in sort of historical journeys as well and, and how potentially mm. we're recreating them or, or giving a sort of nod to, you know, potential, you know, journeys of history. You know, the, the Yukon Gold Rush, for example, Shackleton, um, you know, lo- lots of stuff along those lines. Um, you know, that that for me is, is also interesting. So, yeah, I, I think extremes probably the wrong word you know it's like you said the challenges aren't necessarily getting they're never going to be suffer fest it's not about destroying mm. people that, that's not the evolution the evolution is almost you know the destinations just getting more interesting and and sort of in classically race fashion a bit more off the wall and are there any places that you're 
you kind of just sat waiting on for the geopolitics to change. You know, could you see rat race going into places like Iraq or, uh, you know, the, the gardens of Babylon or going out to um, places in Syria, North Korea, should things uh, alter dramatically? No, there, there are there are one or two expedition companies that kind of specialize in, in that sort of, you know, but still very, very much with a sense of, look, this place sounds dangerous, but isn't that that's not. No, I don't think so. We don't we don't want to sort of go for something because it's perhaps controversial or whatever. I think we want to go on the merit of the destination. You know, there are there is a location. I mean, we talk about sort of you may, may have heard the expression dark tourism, you know, going to places that mm. are slightly forbidden. You know, Chernobyl, you know, is a good example of that. Um, there's a location way out in the Pacific, yeah, Bikini Atoll, where they did the H-bomb experiments back in the 50s. And that to me is fascinating. And that's a place that has literally been, you know, off limits for years, um, you know, 70 years. And, and you know, note that the population was was you know, removed from, from the location. But, but there are islanders that someday want to return. And that whole idea that we've kind of literally blown an island out of the water made it uninhabitable you know nature has recovered you know it's apparently a fascinating place in terms of wildlife you know there's this entire sunken fleet that was literally you know blown to smithereens you know if you look at this place on google earth you can see the craters and that that ominous history fascinates me to the fact that that is a that is a real place this happened you know at the time you see these nuclear explosions you know these pictures you know that everybody's sort of seen it's like it's mm. great stuff you know it's really serious world events yet you can go to this place and it's difficult to get there and and it's fascinating that it, it's it's a real place it exists and it's now safe enough to visit and i think for me somewhere like that personally you know that that that's the true epitome of adventure you know um, you could do a race called chernobyl where there's no cutoff time but if you if you're too slow you get a deadly dose of radiation the perfect distance that if you if you cross it in the quick enough time, you're going to be clean through. Yeah. That would be a challenge. <laughs> that would be a challenge. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I said at the beginning of the interview, I don't think I'm going to come to you for any more business advice. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, I I would love to run through somewhere like Chernobyl because, as you say, I, I yeah, think it is be so interesting just to see the the wildlife that would be properly wild. It is untouched. You've got the history, the buildings. Like, could that be an option? I think absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and there will be some risk assessment to do, you know, in terms of background radiation levels. I mean, clearly there is tourism going into Chernobyl. You know, there, there are tours to Pripyat, you know, the old town there. And I would imagine, you know, much like Bikini Atoll, actually going there is not, you know, is not dangerous. You know, eat, eating things from the soil and living there probably is. So there's a, you know, there's a risk balance there. And I think doing an event in Chernobyl. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? I mean, it's yeah. And I think people will be interested because of that sort of, you know, that that perhaps dark historical kind of reference, you know. And, you know, very topical with the TV show in the last yeah. eight months yeah. or so as well. Um, amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the on the potty. Any any other questions, J.D.? Oh, we've lost him again. Oh, we lost <laughs> I, I thought he was a bit quiet. <laughs> sorry, sorry, listeners. We've uh, Jody's been having some issues with his kids tonight, so he's had to dip in and out, unfortunately. Um, well, thank you so much for for coming back on. Um, if if people want to sign up for the next bucket list, like, what would you recommend? Is if you were to say three races for someone who's never done a, a, a rat race, 
someone who's done one of your old races and is looking to do an ultra one, and someone who really wants to do a bucket list. Which which race would you say one for each of those? Um, someone who's never done a rat race in the UK, I would go for Man versus Coast. It's a fantastic sort of coasting based running journey down in Cornwall. It's about 22 miles. Um, it's got some natural obstacles, jumping in the sea. Really fun, really great. Cornish summer, brilliant. Um, I would say it's sort of the step up kind of option, maybe wants to get into ultra or something like that. Um, ultra Tour of Arran. Arran's a fantastic island. They call it Scotland in miniature. Um, it's really rugged, but it's yeah, brilliant, brilliant weekend away. Um, and I would say bucket list. Um, it's a difficult one, but I, I think you know, Mongolia for sheer, it's the first one we did, sheer just bonkers nature of, oh, my God, I'm on a frozen lake. You know, the ice is meter thick and I'm running the whole length of it. Is just brilliant. And, you know, with, with a bit of kind of shamanic weirdness in there and all the rest of it, culturally, brilliant. You know, it's as much about Mongolia as it is about the race. So they're my three recommendations. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Jim. Good luck with the rest of lockdown and you know, getting that race back to where it, it, it was and, and deserves to be. And if there's anything we can do to help in the future, just let us know. Cheers, guys. Thanks very Cheers, much. Jim. Welcome back, JD. <laughs> well, so listener, something very odd happened on that interview in the sense that I, for some reason, my sound, my sound disappeared. But David didn't know because I don't think you had it on gallery setting on the uh, on on the platform that we're using. So he thought I'd gone, even though I was there. And so I was like desperately waving and messaging him um, to uh, to speak to him. And so I was I was there the whole time. I hadn't disappeared. But you were, the intention was to make a big announcement, which I think some of the listeners will already know, given that you've been training for this already, and sadly, gout has caused an end. No, no, to... no, we're not, we're not mentioning it. We're not? We're not mentioning it at all. We're not mentioning that I was even going to do it. Really? Okay. Why not? Because uh, I don't want to. Fair enough. So, <laughs> watch out for a big announcement from... <laughs> Right, right, scene, and put two and two together. So, I mean, we could help him out with some promo, but no, Jody doesn't want it. <laughs> Sorry, right, right, screw you, screw you, Jim. What have you done for us? <laughs> Being a guest on our podcast. <laughs> so, um, yes, well, it's so nice to catch up with Jim, especially. The, the previous episode we'd recorded that he, he didn't want to put out, well, he, he just thought he'd been a bit down on. I, I don't think he had been, actually, but it, it's nice to actually, we're coming to the end of the, the worst part of COVID, hopefully. And it's nice to actually hear that you know, not everything is doom and gloom. And we are actually going to have some of our races still in existence in the next few years. Yeah. Yeah, I do, I, I, it seems to have, like handled the whole thing really well like just looking back sort of joining the dots from the shift in the position of the bit i mean like you know like we send the thing here how how good does the decision now to sort of exit out of ocr seem um mm. but, you know unless of course you're in uh, florida in which case you can just keep running them as, as often as you want or your spartan race um but yeah god like how you know talk about de-risking your business um at the at the right time um you know i still yeah still lots of lots of challenges but god you know just in terms of like a like a mass just like the map i think that's that's the thing isn't it with all of these things now and that's the thing we're going to see is that 
anything that requires mass participation that you're going to have to have volume and numbers out. Mm. I, I, I can't see how you're going to get insurance for it, how you're going to be able to get like pandemic insurance or, or, or something like that that stops it from going ahead. It's, too, it's just far too risky. I used to know a, um, a guy who ran big marketing events in London. Mm. And he used to get, he used to hire like the big speakers, like two or three big speakers come from the US and they cost loads. And he'd need to fill a room of like 200 people paying three, three, 400, 500 quid each um, in order to do it. And he stopped running events because um, of um, uh, bomb scares, like bomb scares in the, you know, just, you know, in London and things like that, because he couldn't get any insurance. And he, and he knew that, you know, people in the US and so wouldn't come across and stuff like that. And it was just, his business was too risky. To, to ever run again. So we had to just shift out of that and do something completely. And, um, you know, it almost, it, you, you see anything that require like big events and stuff like that is just mm. gonna, I, I just don't see how you're gonna get back unless they, they find some kind of insurance that allows you to, that covers you for that now, which I just, I think the insurance company, you know, insurance industry is gonna take a, you know, there's so many court cases going on at the moment um, for business interruption, letting people down and everything that, you know, I think smaller, smaller events with fewer people, which mm. inevitably could be more expensive, um, is the is the way forward. Which you know, I don't you know, don't, whatever we think about that. But um, well, yeah, to a certain extent, the, you know, we've been complaining in the past, and it, it's the big movement about how people don't treasure their races enough, and there's too many race tops, and there's too many race yeah. medals, and how it's it's just become people don't have an A race anymore. You, you're just constantly racing for the next yeah. shiny thing. And so in, in some ways, you know, that maybe it will actually make us value the races that we do do far more. Um, <laughs> yeah. And all the, and the thing, you know, when you're going, oh, paying like, you know, 60 quid to do a half marathon, you're like, yeah, that's, that's never going to, that, you know, that's going to be cheap in a few years. Yeah. And, and it, it it would be a, it's going to be a massive shame because some of the big races are some of the best, but also I I think most of the smaller races are nicer atmospheres and probably get you into more interesting areas and have a you know a, a better impact per capita yeah. On, yeah on you know on the community and and and, and everyone involved really so. Small is beautiful. You know, I, I messaged Andy from Andy Palmer yesterday, and they're just in hibernation, and their events are pretty small. Um, I mean, Jim's almost unique in having events of thirty people. Yeah, and 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 by the nature of the the the, the event, the events he's doing, you're going to be adventurous to sign up anyway. So you're probably less likely to be. You're going to be more risky in still doing events and yeah so it'd be, it'd be really interesting to see how this pans out because the whole industry is is resting on whether this is the new normal or whether or whether we can get to some kind of change back to anything with over yeah. 100 people um is has london marathon announced they've postponed yet <laughs> or are they i i can't I can't I've, remember. Yeah, I, th I believe they have. Have they? They've. Well, I think they've said statements to the tune of "It's going to be. It's incredibly unlikely." And I, I think now races should stop putting dates in. 
think Ray, you know, the Beerathon, for example, we've we've not. Put oh a, no! A, I was going to say I mentioned that. The... We've we've not put an alternative date in because what's the point? There's it just means some people might book certain things. It causes more hassle than wait until you know it's going to be potentially viable. <laughs> you've got to train. You're going to be. You're going to. Be, you're going to be in peak peak physical fitness all year round because you may call you know the uh, beerathon any moment now you've got a week to beerathon have you got the ability to do it but in but to some extent it, it could actually change the way runners perceive or the, the public perceive marathons because they it won't be in london but there, there will be some races where they just say three weeks time it's going ahead and most people could do a marathon they're not going to get the times they want but they most people would finish and I, I think the the weight of expectation in a marathon if we remove that could be a really good thing for just people getting more active and doing more ultras yeah yeah it's funny isn't it like we talked about the um the fkts and everything like that and actually at the moment in terms of challenges it feels as though that that i mean it's the only thing you can rely on isn't it your mm. distance yourself um and and trying to achieve something yeah yeah absolutely um and that, i mean the only potential negative thing is if we're suddenly turning that the, the if your minimum thing you can do is at least 150 miles <laughs> not that inclusive really is it but <laughs> Well, thanks for that, Jim. If you, if you enjoyed this episode, we've spoken to Jim before, and we've also spoken to other race directors, including like Jason McArdle, talking about the, the crazy marathon races he does around prisons um, and various other really, really fun different takes on marathons, whether that's in a car park, up and down a pier. We spoke to Chris, um, what's Chris's surname, who organises the, the big series in Asia. To talk oh, yeah. about organizing races there james nelson from centurion yep another yep. obvious one to uh, to listen to as well some great stories on there we had any american race organizers oh candice burt okay, organizer yes, of the yeah. 200 mile plus trail series i imagine Incredible. they'll be able to socially distance for that one i think that's a perfect yeah. offer. so that's the perfect you think oh who would do a 200 mile race that is probably the only thing you can do right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've got to stay with 200 miles of another person. <laughs> but um, Yeah, so those are good episodes to follow this up with. Um, and in, indeed, it's quite interesting if you listen to some of the early Ali interviews where we interviewed her, where she didn't used to like rat race. She thought it was all aggressive. Oh, she hated rat race, full of Salomon Man, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah, how wrong she was. Loves rat race. It's always the way. <laughs> You always hate something and then you're best friends with it. That's it, isn't it? 100%. But if you'd, uh, if you'd like to suggest guests for the future, just email david at badboyrunning.com. You can message us about anything we've talked about, letters at badboyrunning.com. Get in the Facebook group where people discuss various things that we've talked about, but also are posting in there various stories that will entertain you. Um, and merch is also available on is that badboyrunning.com as well everything's on badboyrunning.com and and unless it isn't fair enough good point good point so uh thanks for listening guys please do subscribe and review us ideally on itunes because the more reviews we get the better the guests we get 
But thanks for listening, um, and we'll see you next time. Fuck you, buddy.